I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to Discography. I'm your host, Mark with a C. I'm an independent musician and lifelong record geek. Discography is a show in which I wade through all of one artist's canon releases to see how it stacks up. To kick off, I've chosen one of the seemingly hardest to penetrate artists in the history of recorded music, Frank Zappa. This is the third episode in that series. Discography exists to inform and educate listeners who really want to know more. All opinions belong solely to me, Mark with a C, because everything's subjective, right? Frank Zappa was an American composer, and he'll either alienate you or you'll want to build a statue in tribute to his musical majesty. In our first two episodes, we covered the first 23 official releases going by the Zappa Family Trust numbering system, which, according to Frank Zappa, is supposed to add up to one gigantic song when laid and listened to end to end. And it seemed like a great time to do it, because those ZFT CDs are reportedly the best-sounding digital versions of Frank's material to date, and with such a massive catalog, this is the rare period where nearly every release is in print. I absorbed around two albums per week in preparation for this undertaking, and we've so far covered the earliest official recordings with the Mothers of Invention, which had a fluctuating lineup and eventually just became a name that didn't seem to really mean all that much. Frank's flavor, direction, musicality, and socio-political commentary became clearer with each passing album. Here's a nutshell version of some things you might want to know about Frank if you're just joining us for the first time. There's that rumor that he ate human feces on stage, but that never happened. Frank used to joke around and say the closest that he came was eating at a buffet in like Des Moines, Iowa or something. But Frank also understood that good urban legends are important. There's often very little difference between albums attributed to Frank Zappa or Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention. Eventually, it was realized that he'd sometimes sell more records when he used the Mothers moniker, and that explains its occasional reemergence, I think. Each member was important in their own way, often informing the very music itself. I mean, they were the basis of the composition, but if you took Frank away, they wouldn't have had any music to play at all. No matter how much I tell you about Frank Zappa autobiographically, it almost doesn't matter. Once he got going on his quest to document everything that life had to offer, very little didn't inform his big song. Frank claimed, again, if you stuck all of his releases together end to end, you had a gigantic composition. This means that his birth in 1941 in Maryland, his first marriage, then his second marriage to Gail, and the children with all the wacky names, these all might have mattered to Frank the guy, but they also informed Frank the artist. Whatever you needed to know about him, emphasis on what you and me, the listeners, need to know about him, it's in the songs. Or the big song. Nothing was sacred or off limits. 
he lived to compose. And composition could mean just stringing pretty dots together to see what they'd sound like when someone played them on an instrument, or it could mean making secret tape recordings of his backing band. I mean, if they're in the band, then any sound they create is part of the band, right? Sure, he fought the PMRC. He worked tirelessly to keep his audience informed and registered to vote. He even helped to cool Soviet and U.S. relations during the Cold War just to help his records get further distribution. All of those things are interesting, yes, but... Which were the most important parts to be chronicled in the big song? With so much time spent composing and recording, his life truly was the song and vice versa. Anything not brought up in the music is almost a breach of privacy for us to learn because, well, I mean, how much is this guy supposed to give you? Now, I have to warn you, Frank, as an American composer and musical anthropologist, pulls no punches. At some point, he will offend you. There were points where I almost jumped off the train myself, but as a huge proponent for free speech, Frank himself would probably balk at the fact that I'm giving a content warning in 2018. His feeling was that there was no combination of words that would actively hurt your life, but he also passed away before the advent of Tumblr and Twitter, etc. In our first episode, we chronicled uh, the early music, the stuff with Mothers of Invention, like Freak Out and Absolutely Free and We're Only In It For The Money, all the way up to the moment where Flo and Eddie, also known as Howard Kalin and Mark Volman of the 60s pop band The Turtles, had controversially joined at the Mothers of Invention and Frank's increasing fascination with groupies and life on the road with a rock and roll band. And then in the second episode, we saw Frank streamline his releases a little bit, erratically drop and rekindle the Mothers of Invention moniker, and make some of the most fascinating music ever committed to wax while also changing from Frank the Composer to Frank the Entertainer. This was especially apparent in the last album we talked about here, which was Zappa in New York. It's a 1978 album that was the result of Warner Brothers rejecting Frank's initial four-disc set named Lather. Instead, either Frank or the label chopped the contents into individual albums. Some for better, some for worse. But Frank continued to mystify and confuse by relentlessly chugging forward with some of the most original and unpredictable composition that the human race had ever heard and probably ever will hear. Today, we pick the big song back up in 1978. And also in my, geez, 13th or 14th week of all Zappa all the time? Well, the big song ain't getting any shorter. Let's go. Week 13? No, actually it's week 14 with ZFT CD number 24, Studio Tan, released by Frank Zappa in September of 1978. The Adventures of Gregory Peccary. Oh, here comes Gregory, little Gregory Peccary. first kicked this project off, I'd felt that Frank's work was varied enough that I wouldn't hit any sort of brick wall of boredom. But something happened around Zappa in New York, ZFT 23, that I can't quite explain. The record had so many lowest common denominator sort of moments that I found myself struggling to get through each successive listen. I needed a break. 
So I took a week off and I'm glad that I did because it allowed me to pick up Studio Tan with fresh ears. It's a return to all the things that make Frank great in one package. Dense and bizarre storytelling, complex classic motifs, and lots of conceptual continuity and some genuinely beautiful moments too. Studio Tan tends to get short shrift as part of the Contractual Obligation series of Warner albums, and possibly due to the fact that it only contains four songs, but it's actually an incredibly wonderful and underrated album and movement in the big song. In many ways, it's a bit of a throwback to the Uncle Meat era, but with all of Frank's amassed knowledge and studio know-how of the time. First, why only four songs? Because the opening cut, The Adventures of Gregory Peckery, is a whopping 21-minute monster composition. Nearly impossible to describe, but that's my job here, so here goes nothing. The track crashes in, as you heard, with Frank announcing the title of the tune. Though the instrumentation is limited to vocals, guitar, keyboards, bass, and drums, it's hard to fathom that there's not a full orchestra bringing this fantastic piece to life. There's little musical repetition, but there are numerous musical callbacks to prior movements in the big song. In short, it's the story of a pig that creates trends for a company called Big Swifty. He invents the calendar, and suddenly people are confronted with mortality. Understandably, this upsets some folks, and he escapes them by hiding in Billy the Mountain. However, he can't wrap his head around who's in charge of inventing the clouds of dust and boulders that Billy hacks up. He consults a philosopher who reminds him of the complexities, afflictions, and illusions of time. It simply must be heard to be believed. Sometimes there's a few minutes between new story elements, and it's pretty easy to check out and space out the unfamiliar musical changes, and for this reason it doesn't really reach the heights uh, or levels of something you'd want to hear every day, but it's a pretty massive musical achievement, and I've read on a few occasions that Frank apparently considered it to be one of his very best works, and it's easy to see why. Any other person that put this epic together might have been tempted to rest on their laurels afterwards and let the accolades pour in. Frank instead kept releasing music at such a quick clip that this practically gets lost in the shuffle. A true shame. Though I've owned the album for years, I hadn't really paid super close attention to that sprawling side one until now, and it was truly worth every second. Sunday. Wow. Sunday, Saturday, Tuesday through Monday, Monday. Sunday, Saturday. it's closely followed on the CD by one of the most simple lyrical concepts in the entirety of Frank's output to date in Let Me Take You to the Beach. Practically oozing with a falsetto-laden sarcasm over its innocent nature, bringing cookies along on a beach date, for example. It's backed by a suitably and disarmingly complex take on pop radio, but it's over so quickly that it sometimes gets lost in such a massive discography, which is a real shame. Studio 
Tan is rounded out by two wonderfully enjoyable instrumentals, revised music for guitar and low-budget orchestra, and Redunzel. The former is still filled with as many chord and tempo changes as one would expect from a Frank Zappa instrumental, but the layer of synth strings and brass actually bring moments of the piece to levels of true beauty. Redunzel changes styles every few bars as if to show that Frank could compose absolutely any style of music he set his mind to, and he didn't need any stinking words to blow you away, especially not when he was capable of such earth-scorching guitar solos. Though they're each their own piece, revised music for guitar and low-budget orchestra and Redunzel flow together so well that I can't really imagine hearing them apart after hearing them on this record. Often overlooked, Studio 10 is unfortunately saddled with a messy history that might lead some listeners to believe that it's a lesser work, when in fact, the only trouble with the album is the way that the original record company handled it. The ZFT CD issue is crisp, brisk, and bordering on sonic perfection. It doesn't quite reach undeniable masterpiece level, but it is incredibly close, and it really ought to be heard back-to-back with the next movement in the big song. ZFT CD number 26, Sleep Dirt, released by Frank Zappa in January of 1979. Dirt so undeservedly slept on. Fans of Hot Rats, Waka Jawaka, and the Grand Wazoo would do well to drop everything and acquire this album immediately. One simply has to make sure that they're acquiring the correct version. When Sleep Dirt first quietly appeared on record store shelves in early 1979, it was a completely instrumental affair. But somewhere along the way, Frank decided to have Thana Harris add some rather out-of-place vocals to three tracks, while also talking Chad Wackerman, the drummer, into replacing a few original drum parts with updated and very 80s-sounding drums. And that was the only issue of the album available for a very, very long time. When the official ZFT digital copy came down the pike in 2012, it was decided that they'd revert back to the original mixes and all was right with the world again. Sleep Dirt is like a middle-of-the-night type of record, a dark but not sinister mood, the kind of thing that you might imagine Charlton Heston listening to in the film Omega Man. Just a bit lonely and desolate, it's kind of hard to describe, really. It flows together so well that I'm almost saddened by the fact that the pieces within are given individual track names, because like Lumpy Gravy before it, the sum is infinitely greater than the parts of Sleep Dirt. There are 
jazzy excursions like Flambe and Egyptian Strut, the latter of which comes with one of the coolest grooves you've never heard. Speaking of bass, Patrick O'Hearn wins the MVP award for his heroics on the guitar-dominated The Ocean is the Ultimate Solution. That tune is especially jarring in its complexity, and the word on the street is that Mr. O'Hearn did the stand-up bass portions while hearing the song for the very first time. And this was after he'd just played a few sets with his other band at the time. The Ocean is the Ultimate Solution also has one of the strangest guitar tones you're ever going to hear. Fans have debated how those were achieved for years, or what that instrument actually was. Some swear that it was a strange little fretless acoustic contraption, while Terry Bazio insists it was a standard 12-string guitar that has separate outputs for each string. However it was constructed, it's certainly otherworldly, but it might take some getting used to. Zappa haters would be greatly surprised by the gentle and acoustic title track, and most Halloween parties could be greatly enhanced by the eerie droning strains of filthy habits. The album may only be 39 minutes long, but every second counts, and for that reason, I'm going to controversially place this in the masterpiece pile. Besides some overheard studio banter in the title track, this is a wholly unique instrumental album. There's very little else that I've ever heard that compares to it in all of my musical travels. Of course, this label only extends to the instrumental renditions of the album and not the retweezed massacres with vocals. If there's one gripe that I have with the reinstated original mix of Sleep Dirt, it would be some of Bob Ludwig's mastering decisions. Now, of course, I have no earthly idea what condition the masters were in when the ZFT decided to restore this title to its original glory, but parts that once sounded fat and chunky on the original vinyl seem a little more open and bright, and vice versa, and I do mean noticeably bright. It's actually one of the few titles that they'd claim to have quote-unquote restored that just doesn't quite stack up to or best the original in this series. Honestly, one should take the instrumental Sleep Dirt album any way they can get it, but I do wish that it wasn't mixed so bright and glassy. But that's just nitpicking, really. This is a practically perfect album, and few outside of Zappa's circles even know of its existence, and that's the real crime here. Week 15, ZFT CD, number 26, Shake Your Booty, released by Frank Zappa in March of 1979. Picking 
up after the mind-boggling end of Sleep Dirt, we're thrust right into some familiar doo-wop in R&B territory with I Have Been In You. It's a seemingly obvious response to Peter Frampton's much-maligned I'm In You, which is widely considered to be one of the biggest flops in the history of popular music, and were it not for the graphic sexual content of I Have Been In You, this could have been quite the radio hit, and really that's the bulk of the lyrical material of Shake Your Booty. Stuff that's so instantly familiar that you're positive that you must have heard it somewhere before, with lyrics that guarantee it wouldn't have been from terrestrial radio. By now, each Zappa album introduces a host of musicians while other musicians are just poof, gone, no explanation. Frank seems to begin using the personalities and deliveries of the members as its own instrument in a more overt way than ever before. We'd heard hints of that in songs like Punky's Whips, for example, but with I'm So Cute, for example, it simply would not work with anybody but Terry Basio as the star. It's built into the lyrics. In a way, Frank becomes even more of a musical puppeteer, but isn't completely sold on the human element. But that's getting a bit further ahead than I'm comfortable with. Everybody. Watch the way he keep the beat. Sweet as honey, he's a piece of cake. From the ginseng root and sloppy take. Vitamin E and all the bees. It's so cool, he'll make you freeze. Make you freeze. Make you freeze. Excuse me, please. Step aside. Meanwhile, Flakes is a multi-part epic about people who are unreliable, featuring a fantastic middle portion with a Bob Dylan parody. If Frank had shown disdain for popular culture before, he was being way more direct about his distaste for his contemporaries than we've ever seen. Flakes is brilliant enough to be nearly any group's crowning achievement, but on Shake Your Booty, it's merely the second of 18 songs. I'm a moron and this is my wife. Blasting a cake with a paper knife. All what we got here's American made. It's a little bit cheesy, but it's nicely displayed. If you look back, you'll see that I'd pointed out that Frank Zappa was a madman who sang horrific scatological songs in the eyes of the media. On songs like Broken Hearts are for Assholes, he seems to deliver on exactly what people would expect from a Zappa record if they'd only ever read about him, with a catchier-than-it-ought-to-be refrain of, Ram it up your poop shoot? This song, complete with direct references to fisting, probably wasn't doing Frank any favors in the being taken seriously department, but at the same time, I don't think I've ever explored an artist that was less concerned about their public image. The true strength of Shake Your Booty is the way it mixes so much of what Frank was up to in one place. The boogie-woogie dumbness of Jones Crusher, interstitial bits of stage banner that remind the listener of the piano people from Lumpy Gravy, and Zappa's burgeoning love of Xenocrony. The latter is a process where Frank would take, say, a bass part from one show and marry it to a drum part of a different song from a different gig just to see what would happen. Zappa's 
Xenocrony would allow him to compose material that would have never otherwise existed. He'd already done this a few times when we didn't necessarily know it was happening, like in Inca Roads or Friendly Little Finger, but this is the album where those pieces would become real and true assets and merely a different way to compose a piece. All of that obsessive documenting really came in handy, it seems. Shake Your Booty, again, is definitely greater than the sum of its parts when listened to in full, but this movement in the big song has its own bite-sized helpings that work very well independently. Some examples are uh, the astoundingly offensive but terminally catchy Bobby Brown Goes Down, which is one of the biggest selling singles of all time in non-English speaking countries. Oh God, I am the American dream. With a spindle up my butt till it makes me scream And I'll do anything to get ahead I'll lay awake nights saying thank you, Fred Oh God, oh God, I'm so fantastic And then City of Tiny Lights, another epic that would later steal the show very early on in a film called Baby Snakes, which was filmed during the shows that would make up a good portion of the Shake Your Booty backing tracks. Tiny is as tiny do and a bona fide hit single with Dancing Fool, a song that lyrically skewers disco dancing, but also seemed to work very well in the very clubs where such material was played without irony. Well, I go dancing every night, hoping one day I might get it right. I'm a dancing fool. It would seem to me that with songs as catchy as Trying to Grow a Chin and the wildly experimental but still memorable Yo Mama, that the biggest handicap that this album had working against it was the preconceived notions that people had about Frank Zappa, media mogul. I believe that if people had actually been exposed to some of these songs in a serious way, this would have been one of THE albums of 1979. Instead, it appears to be a controversial album in his canon when it really could have ended up being one of the most defining moments of his career. Longtime Zappa fans were getting fed up with what they perceived as non-ironic sexism in songs like Jewish Princess, and the folks that liked those songs weren't ready for the wandering and free instrumental excursions of the Shake Your Booty Tango. As a result, no one wins, and the album becomes a love-it-or-hate-it entry into the big project-slash-object. I personally love it and see all of the words to the songs as further commentary on the actions of real-life people that actually existed. I have no qualms about putting this album in the masterpiece pile, and I believe that anyone unable to see past some lyrics that might make Tumblr wrinkle up their noses simply has their mind made up already, and they weren't going to enjoy it in the first place. The ZFT CD version is a nearly perfect recreation of the tones that made the original vinyl edition sound so good. Wonderfully executed all the way around, and if you're not going to explore everything that Frank Zappa has ever done, this is one of the ten or so titles that you simply can't live without if you claim to take great music seriously. Patrick O'Hearn, Adrian Ballou, Tommy Mars, Terry Bozio, Peter Wolf, Ed Mann. Thanks for coming to the concert. Good night. ZFT CD number 27, 
orchestral favorites, released by Frank Zappa in May of 1979. It's like four records in five months. Jesus. our next movement in the big song, we just kind of get pretty and pastoral with orchestral favorites. This is yet another of the albums that rose from the ashes of the ill-fated lather set, but I can't imagine this material working as well, chopped up in place between big rock and roll songs. It's Frank's first fully orchestral release, so to speak, since Lumpy Gravy, and that might be a debatable statement on its own. Lumpy Gravy with its cut-up speech and intentional, intrusive noises, and this one having its share of electric instruments. Either way, if you throw on this version of the opening Strictly Genteel, which you just heard a bit of, there's no getting around it. Frank was a true blue classical composer, and he's a horrifically underrated one at that. The track is just staggeringly beautiful, warm, and welcoming. Playing it for someone that only knew things that they'd read about Frank Zappa would probably result in your friend believing that you had put on a completely different artist in the CD player just to screw with them. And you do get a bit of avant-garde unpredictability and Pedro's dowry and a heapin' helpin' of atonality in the short naval aviation and art, but this is otherwise one of the most tame and just flat-out easy-to-listen-to Zappa records around. There's little to say about the contents otherwise, as the remaining tracks are either something we've heard before, like this is the most successful take on Duke of Prunes yet, in my opinion, or the wonderful slide into conceptual continuity with Bogus Pomp, which is kind of a guess-the-theme composite of snatches from 200 motels. Orchestral Favorites wasn't going to burn up the Billboard charts, and even though the folks at Warner had bungled the material in numerous ways at every given opportunity, this still plays through as a passion project for Frank, feeling as if this is what he'd be cooking up if sales figures and money didn't matter at all. It's not a record that most are likely to mention when speaking of Frank, and in all honesty, any nod towards anything orchestral is likely to send most fans of pop and rock music running for the hills, but it definitely feels important because it's so out of left field. The CD issue offered up by the ZFT sounds fantastic, which is interesting because this is apparently exactly the exact same digital master that we've always been offered. I'd never heard one of the lambasted Ryko disc versions, but it's honestly hard to imagine this album being delivered in a more successful fashion when ones and zeros are involved. A hidden treasure and the very epitome of underrated. Week 16, ZFT CDs 28 and 29, Joe's Garage, released by Frank Zappa in September and November of 
was dreading this one, and not because I don't enjoy it. I love Joe's Garage. I loved it from the moment I first heard Act 1 on a badly dubbed cassette found in a thrift store. I spent my entire allowance on the Ryko Disc CD so I could finally hear how the thing ended. I thought there wasn't a hair out of place and not even a remote possibility that you can improve the thing. How could this story-centric concept album not be the first thing people spoke of with Frank Zappa? Why did big Zappa fans treat it like, well, it's pretty good, but if you want to understand Frank, you need to hear the following 17 albums instead first. Whittle-a-ding-dang-diddle-a-ding-dang-do. Well, 27 albums in, and I get it. My initial summation still stands. Joe's Garage is perfect in nearly every conceivable way, and it's also the peak of Zappa's scatological and off-putting sexual humor. The xenocrony is in full effect. The musicianship is so stellar that it's hard to imagine that human beings played these notes on real instruments. The production is so airtight that entire volumes of encyclopedias could probably be written about the techniques used to capture these sounds. But really, it looks like Frank threw a bunch of songs he had laying around in some kind of order, slapped some narration on it on top of it in the form of the central scrutinizer, wrote a couple of new verses to fill in the gaps, called it a rock opera, and fooled everyone. Let me pause to emphasize this. Frank might have simply slapped together one of the best rock operas of all time out of scraps that were laying around. This is who we are dealing with, friends. One more time! We could jam in Joe's garage His mama was screaming Turn it down! We was playing the same old song In the afternoon And sometimes we were playing all night long It was all we knew And easy to So we wouldn't get it wrong Even if we played it on the saxophone I've been dreading having to describe each track in detail. There's two hours of material here that runs the gamut of nearly every single style Frank had ever tried, and every verse seems to introduce a new element. I know I'm supposed to be doing a whole show-don't-tell kind of thing here, but this is one of the rare albums where I have to say the following. Please, just listen to it. You'll get why this is so difficult to describe, and you're either going to love it or know once and for all if Zappa is your thing or not. I'll try my best to describe the story, but I'm just glossing over most points. It's best experienced in full. So, <clears throat> here we go. Joe is your average kid that likes rock and roll. He's in a band. They get signed, break up, reunite, and then he's arrested for making too much noise. Mary is his girlfriend, but she leaves her Catholic background to sleep with roadies to get into rock concerts for free. Joe ends up with an unpronounceable disease and finds himself in a cult that has sex with household appliances. He shorts out a vacuum cleaner during a golden shower and is thrown in prison. When he is finally released, music is outlawed, so he mostly just daydreams about imaginary guitar solos. I lay on my back here till dawn in a semi-catatonic state And dream of guitar notes that would irritate An executive kind of guy Oh sure, there's more, but I already feel like I've given far too much away. Catholic girls, crew slut, 
Why Does It Hurt When I Pee, and the title track are among the catchiest songs in Zappa's discography, but the subject matter ensures that you won't want to get caught singing them by the water cooler. The lineup is an amalgamation of Frank's touring bands and some new faces, like Warren Cucurullo on guitar, Vinnie Caliuta on drums, but the real MVP here is Ike Willis. He'd become Frank's most lasting vocal interpreter in the coming years. His vocal turn on Outside Now will shock you with genuine passion, as will Frank's mournful guitar wailings on the bleakly beautiful Watermelon and Easter Hay. gets less sensical, the music steps in and carries the project until we're greeted with a closing tune about muffins. Yes, muffins. The story is important, though, based on censorship issues that Frank would spend a good portion of the 80s fighting against, but as Joe's Garage was never fully staged with Frank Zappa's involvement, it comes across as just another project. If it had been given the full 200 Motels treatment, this could have been ranked right next to, say, I don't know, Tommy and Jesus Christ Superstar or something, you know, just in the public eye. Instead, it awaits discovery on two beautifully mastered compact discs from the ZFT for anyone with the ears to hear it. I know, I know, I'm not breaking down a whole bunch of the tracks as usual. It isn't out of laziness, I assure you. It's actually born of the notion that once you've heard a few of the key tracks that I've mentioned to you and the outline of the story, you'll either be sold on Joe's Garage or you won't be. No matter how hard I try to look at this as part of the big song, I actually see this as sort of a break. A quick diversion that still works in the grand scheme, but a piece that could also serve for some as the only Frank Zappa they'd ever need. I'm under the impression that the next album will sort of feel like... We, we now rejoin our original program, program already in progress. Week 17. ZFT CD number 30, Tinseltown Rebellion, released by Frank Zappa in May of 1981. redundant it may be when talking about a Frank Zappa album, it needs to be said, Tinseltown Rebellion is a weird album. Just an odd duck in general. After Joe's Garage, the story within a big song, I kind of expected this to pick right up from where we left off with orchestral favorites, but that's not the case at all. It's an enjoyable album, but the pacing seems uncharacteristically off. 
It's a live album, but it doesn't really rub that in your face for the first 20 or so minutes. And in another strange twist, though the lineup here contains hotshot guitarists like Warren Cucurullo from Joe's Garage and a very, very young Steve Vai, this decidedly rock album mixes the guitars down low enough that one doesn't really even notice them. Unless Frank steps up to play a rip and lead, of course. Fine Girl opens the record, a reggae-influenced track full of harmony and catchy melodies. It's cut from the same cloth as Jewish Princess and other tracks that boil ladies down to mere objects and what they can offer with their actions. The manner of lyrical delivery again seems like it's Frank spouting off things he'd overheard in conversation, especially in the refrain of, we need some more like that in this kind of town. Just vague enough to be able to apply the lyrics to, well, any place. Fine Girl is just fine, but it's not the most striking opener Frank has ever delivered. We follow that up with Easy Meat, a deceptive song that appears to be another track full of heavy metal riffage and talk about women that are easy to get into ye old sack, but then it goes into a slightly classic direction, breaks down into a lumpy gravy style interruption before we launch into another soaring solo. Young Sophisticate, which is a leftover from the aborted lather set that seemed oddly ready for radio airplay, but it was never marketed as such. One of Zappa's most accessible compositions, it's a bit of a wonder that the track isn't name-checked more often with its pretty catchy chorus. I mean, when you just read it, dear heart, dear heart, tell me, tell me what's the reason, you're like, hey, those are kind of bland rock lyrics, but it's out of character to hear it on a Frank album for the first time in so long. Such a direct chorus. Dear heart, dear heart Tell me, tell me what's the reason Dear heart, dear heart Tell me, tell me what's the reason And that's where side one would have faded out. But we're reviewing the digital version, you know, the CD here. So when the music reappears, we get a one-two punch of two early tracks, Love of My Life and I Ain't Got No Heart. And these work well back to back and were sure to please any concert goers that wanted to hear some early mother's tunes. But they're given such curt readings that seem insanely rushed, like Frank wanted them to be over as soon as possible. So we can get to Frank welcoming the audience and introducing the band and begging for ladies' undergarments to be thrown onto the stage so that they can make a quilt. We are making a quilt. Really. Trust me. So here's the deal. If you're a girl and you're wearing a dress, whip them off. That's it, see? No problem. Even with a pin, what does it say? Nobody's perfect. I guess so. What do we got here? And that takes up five straight minutes. Perhaps as a reward, we're treated to another oldie with Tell Me You Love Me. Remember that one from Chunga's Revenge, which again is sped up to the point of being almost devoid of any passion whatsoever. And the low guitar mix buries the classic riff, which some might argue is the best part of a rather dumb composition lyrically. A dumb composition when it's coming from Frank, at least. See, when I say dumb composition, 
I say it knowing that Frank knew that he was writing incredibly dumb lyrics. Read an interview with him sometime, you'll see that I'm not going like, oh, Frank, you dummy. It's just not like that. Anyways, the second truly interesting moment arrives with Now You See It, Now You Don't, which is a new guitar solo played over a vamp from Uncle Meat's King Kong. Despite the cold and sterile mix, Frank's guitar is such a welcome change of pace for this comparatively flat album that it might have gone unnoticed anywhere else. This is followed by three minutes of Frank picking out audience members for a dance contest that we can't see, mostly focusing on an overzealous fan that would really like all of us to know that he is not a queer. But this is just a warm-up for a striking and strange piece known as the Blue Light. Um, a lot of the verses are done in Frank's speak singing, and I was surprised to find that it seemed to be scripted when other band members joined in to reference Donovan's Atlantis. The piece seems to mostly take pot shots at stasis, which underscores the irony of its appearance on such a static album. But the title track, the title track to the album is up next, and it's an angry little bugger taking on the then burgeoning punk new wave scene, railing against decent musicians that intentionally dumb down their music just so it'll move mega units for the everyman. It's a really cool track that's aged very well besides that one line, the groups that look real queer line. Plenty of otherwise talented musicians are still playing to the lowest common denominator. They used to play all kinds of stuff, and some of it was nice. Some of it was musical, but then they took some guy's advice To get a record deal, he said they would have to be more punk Forget their chops and play real dumb, or else they would be sunk So off they go to SIR to learn some stupid riffs This is followed by two possibly intentionally annoying tracks with Pick Me, I'm Clean which is a song seeming to be about overeager groupies, and Bamboozled by Love, which is heavily rooted in heavy blues rock, but it's about a man that is considering decapitating his significant other if she does not perform oral sex on him. I'm not touching that one with a 50-foot pole. She can scream and she can holler Bang her head all along the wall If she don't give me what I want she gonna have no head at all. Tinseltown Rebellion is capped off with a note-perfect rendition of Brown Shoes Don't Make It, which has good points and bad points. Some of you from episode number one will remember that I'm not crazy about the Captain Beefheart vocals on the original. Unfortunately, Tommy Mars and Peter Wolf not the Peter Wolf from the Jake Isles band. They used the most cheesy 80s synthesizers imaginable, so the track and all of the others here are just coated in the stuff. We bring the album, the show, and this portion of the big song to a close with a brand new take on Peaches and Regalia, which is a pretty hard song to screw up, you know? not 
were totally blown away by Tinseltown Rebellion. It was the only one I focused on this week because in its original release it took up two LPs, so I thought it might require a bit more attention than a single disc. Instead, I was surprised to find that these 68 minutes could have really been trimmed to an enjoyable but still lightweight single album. There's just no apparent reason for the tracks devoted to audience banter, for example. If you kept Tinseltown Rebellion to just cuts that hadn't been released before, this album could have been a snugly 44-minute affair. This part of the big song seems padded and full of material that borders on being completely unnecessary, which pains me to say. This ZFT CD reissue is apparently a major upgrade over the previous digital versions that I'm rather unfamiliar with, but it still feels a bit cold and lifeless. Maybe it just feels like a huge letdown after the majesty of Joe's Garage? While this work is certainly enjoyable in places, it just feels slightly beneath Zappa's potential. Vinny, Butsis, Vinny's girlfriend, Butsis' girlfriend, Patty, Denny, uh, Marty, forget your name, even though you've been in the crew for a while. David, Ike, Tommy, Ed, another Vinny, Arthur, Al DiMiolo, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for coming to the show. Hope you enjoyed it. On behalf of Alvin Lee, see you next time. Week 18. ZFT CDs 31, 32, and 33, Shut Up and Play Your Guitar, released in May of 1981 by Frank Zappa. This album feels like one of the most dense readings of Frank Zappa's potential imaginable. Get this, for this movement in the big song, Frank slices and dices a ton of mostly improvised instrumentals from then-recent live gigs and presents them as fully formed songs. And why the hell shouldn't he? He liked to pick up his guitar and compose in the moment, so why not give those moments their own attention? As these were all taken from live gigs, for this long movement in the big song, you're hearkened back to tracks like Orange County Lumber Truck, Black Napkins, Pound for a Brown, The Torture Never Stops, and Inca Roads, to name a few. In this way, there's many reprisals of previous musical themes, but each one's given a brand new twist, a new performance, and a new guitar melody that can sometimes become so transcendent, you'll not even think about the origins. you've got individual quote-unquote songs here, mostly separated by snorks, crashing noises, or piano people, a la Lumpy Gravy, this is definitely an album that's beneficial to just put on and not think about where the song begins and ends. It's just a journey. One that shouldn't be concerned with beginnings or ends. It's odd that such complex music could also blend together as bizarre background or mood music, but it does somehow work out that way. The compositions themselves are nearly impossible to describe. There are more tempo and meter changes here per capita than nearly any other Zappa album to date. The guitar work here isn't that of a virtuoso, but rather that of a man that can do anything he decides to do. 
Sometimes you'll even get solos that sound as if Frank has learned them back note for note and decided to replicate and double them in the studio, such as on variations on the secret Carlos Santana chord progression. Now, quite obviously, Frank's anyway, anyhow, anywhere guitar work is the star of the show for the better part of two hours, originally released on three LPs, now spread over just two compact discs. But special credit should be given to Vinny Caliuta, as he's the drummer for 95% of these tracks. While Frank's blowing your mind with the types of hammered guitar work that was basically besting even the best of the hair metal guitar solos of the time in songs like Gee, I Like Your Pants, it's Vinny that cuts through the din, holds it all together, and once in a while very nearly steals the spotlight. Very few of these pieces probably hold up when separated from the album itself, but when they're all mashed together, it's a nearly seamless piece that really helps drive home the big song concept. If you were going to just try one out, I'd recommend 555. It opens the album in a pretty fiery manner, but if you end up hating this type of exploration, you'll know not to listen any further. If you enjoy it, you'll probably forget to turn it off and just let the whole piece wrap around your environment. This album's not necessarily the place to begin with Frank, nor is it quite worthy of inclusion in the masterpiece pile, though for what it actually is, it's oddly impeccable. There are few records like it, besides the other albums of this type that Frank would make himself, so it becomes a rather groundbreaking piece. It's wonderful, but not all-encompassing. And in the context of the big song, it's as if we've just taken our first truly extended guitar solo with this movement while still referencing earlier musical themes. It works better in the notion of conceptual continuity than it does if one were to simply stumble upon it, and in the proper context, it rules without question. Initially, again, this set was released as three individual LPs. Shut Up and Play Your Guitar, Shut Up and Play Your Guitar Some More, and Return of the Sun of Shut Up and Play Your Guitar. Later, they were collected into a box set, and now this ZFT version slaps it all together in one handy two-disc set. And with this digital remastering by Bob Ludwig, I can't really envision it ever sounding any better than this. I'm heavily biased in favor of the next album, spoiler alert, as it's been one of my very favorite records of all time for many years, but I was elated to find that Shut Up and Play Your Guitar worked Bridget and Tinseltown Rebellion together so well. Week 19, ZFT CD number 34. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry, only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. 
or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. You Are What You Is, released by Frank Zappa in September of 1981. It's a miserable Friday night. I'm so lonely, and nobody will give me a ride to the Grateful Dead concert. Oh, rats. I probably shouldn't be talking about this album. (laughs) I'll tell you right now, I do not have an objective opinion about You Are What You Is. I'm totally biased by my unabashed love for it. I believe that it's Frank's most artistically brilliant vocal record, and I'd put it right next to Hot Rats in the Stone Cold Masterpiece Department. It's also one of the most slept-on albums in the entire Frank Zappa canon. Many people jump ship around this point, too, and I don't believe that'd be the case if they gave this marvelous and nearly perfect portion of the big song a fair shot. You Are What You Is is predominantly filled with single-length songs with only dumb all over breaking the five minute mark. And a double album full of them? This is a real anomaly at this point if you're following along chronologically. Frank's words are at their satirical peak here, with the bulk of the vocals being shared by Frank, Ray White, and Ike Willis. And in the drum department, David Logman absolutely slays at every given opportunity. Before I pontificate on the possible reasons for this album being one of the less talked about Zappa releases, let's talk about the tunes. We kick off with Teenage Wind, which is a hypnotic and repetitive tune from the perspective of a teenager that wants to be free. Because free is when you don't have to do nothing or pay for nothing, of course. And he's dying to see the Grateful Dead, but he'd also like to make time for a midnight showing of 200 motels. Entitlement has rarely ever been pummeled in a better manner, and that's followed by... A country song featuring the return of Jimmy Carl Black's lonesome cowboy Burt character from 200 Motels. We must say goodbye. There's no need for you to cry. It's better that I tell you this tonight. Our affair has been quite heated. You thought I was what you needed. But the time has come, my darling. Yes, Harder Than Your Husband is a bit of a novelty. It's also a fair representation of what was emanating from the country radio airwaves at the time. And while we speak of radio, Doreen takes the trope of repeating a theme and beating it into the ground into the levels of high art, full of intentionally dumb lyrics about love, rock and roll cliches, stack on top of each other until the song turns almost into mush in the best possible way. And to end that opening suite, we slide into Goblin Girl, another reggae-tinged number in the vein of Fine Girl from Tinseltown Rebellion, with even more of the theme stacking towards the end, which slides into the strangest tune on the album, 
which is a slice of a bigger work that we've yet to hear in full, Sinister Footwear. The second suite begins with a critique on the beauty of the celebutants, which segues into the beauty of a lady named Charlie until she imbibes too much cocaine and dies. At the funeral, folks are begging for some pills to kill the emotional pain, and of course this leads us into a song about the Conehead characters from Saturday Night Live. Logically. That's getting her hot top A hoop or a ring Going over the top Of her own head On one hand, it's almost as if Frank was making the most lyrically accessible album possible with the music mostly consisting of highly recognizable tones from popular music, while still seeing that everything would be nigh on impossible for an amateur musician to replicate in part or whole. For this reason, it was an easy album for me to see the brilliance in, but also, we're only halfway through. And I point this out because the suite that follows feels like it was full of words that Frank really wanted to get across. And I have to wonder if the aforementioned accessibility was there to try and get listeners to really pay attention to this portion of the album. The third suite takes up what used to be side three on the vinyl edition, and I'm hard-pressed to think of a more vital and essential side three in the history of rock music than this one. It consists of... Do you know what you are? You Are What You Is, the title track, another highly repetitive track about the dangers of racial and cultural appropriation. Also one of the catchiest tunes in the entire Zappa catalog, it was one of the few music videos that he'd ever make, but since it featured then-president Ronald Reagan in the electric chair, I assume it wasn't a widely screened music video. And dropping the N-word probably didn't help either. Ike and Ray do some stunning vocal ad-libs on what can only be described as... A few black gentlemen poking fun at Ebonics, or rather poking fun at those who might poke fun at Ebonics. It's a bit meta, and it's certainly the precursor to another controversial part of our big song, but I'm getting way ahead of myself. The title track is followed by... Butt Club! All the way downtown. Butt Club! They ain't missing around. Let's turn to the left and look around because it's there somewhere. That's right, Mud Club. Another sort of stab at perverted reggae, as Frank would call it, with a spokesung dialogue about the appropriation of S&M gear as a fashion statement at dance clubs. Another hideously catchy song, despite Frank's attempts at obscuring his voice with one of the strangest chorus or flange combinations I've heard him use to date. But the oddest part is just how well it flows right into the meek shall inherit nothing. Some take the Bible for what it's worth When it says that the meek shall inherit the earth The meek shall inherit nothing is a highly gospel-influenced number full of deceptively complex vocal harmony. And sure, Frank rips organized religion in a couple of new orifices, but not without filling the listener with some unexpectedly inspiring life advice, which leads us directly into Dumb All Over. (laughs) 
That's right, Lonesome Cowboy Burt leads us into a relentlessly funky number delivered with more spoke-sung vocals from Frank, and it's really one of the most important standalone numbers in Frank's entire repertoire as he lays the role of religion and wars bare. Then he drops a lyrical bomb of his own, which I'm just going to let it play on its own. Hey, we can't really be dumb if we're just following God's orders. Let's get serious. God knows what he's doing. He wrote this book here, and the book says he made us all to be just like him. So if we're dumb, then God is dumb, and maybe even a little ugly on the side. Wow, can you imagine how many parents that must have pissed off? But just as Dumb All Over fades out from an especially tasty solo, Bam! The song comes right back in to open another gospel track called Heavenly Bank Account, which is a cautionary explanation of the then-widespread problems of televangelism. Televangelists, in case uh, that's foreign to you, were TV preachers who'd convince folks to part with their money for a round of fake faith healing or to even sell prayers. And Frank wasn't taking any prisoners with this subject. He further connects the dots between the public pastors and why they were so influential to politics politicians and really ultimately explains the moment that America sold one of their two major parties out to the influence of one specific church. The Republican Party wasn't always just an arm of the religious right, and Frank was doing everything possible to warn people with these tracks. To round out the album, Frank makes fun of those who threaten suicide for attention with one of his coolest blues-based rockers in a long time with Suicide Chump, and uses a torrent of fat woman jokes to disguise just how complex the music of Jumbo Go Away actually is, and closes the album with the possibility of the draft coming back to scoop up the impressionable American youth. And let's face it, if these songs had come out of anyone else, certain portions of this record would have elevated them to voice of a generation status. In 1981, though, it was just another Zappa album. He was self-releasing this stuff. Rock radio was a minefield of payola, and there just wasn't much chance of getting it heard outside of his devoted fan base. I often wonder just how much effect the lyrical contents could have had on the world if it was moving units like Boston or Ozzy Osbourne was selling at the time. And I wouldn't recommend heading down that mental path because it's pretty depressing that it didn't happen. Beyond being an independent record, when it finally hit the compact disc format with a label that could make sure it was on record store shelves, something had happened to You Are What You Is in the mastering stage that absolutely massacred the album. Not only was it sped up, but the compression settings had gone so awry that the average listener hearing it for the first time couldn't be expected to comfortably listen to the music for any period of time. For all intents and purposes, You Are What You Is had always been sold as a defective record, including the initial vinyl release. Two of the vinyl sides actually played too slowly. The 2012 ZFT CD edition is as close to perfect as we can probably hope for. It's not quite as spacious and warm as the vinyl, but everything's in tune and the compression-influenced volume levels don't fluctuate up and down unexpectedly a few beats you know, every few beats for seemingly no reason. So I'll take it. It's my belief that the album had never been heard properly, and by the time it was, it was buried under the weight of literally hundreds of Frank Zappa releases. It should go without saying that I place this one right in the masterpiece pile without shame. I might even say that if you want a good feel for, I guess what we're getting into as latter-day Frank Zappa, 
this is the album you need. Such a wordy record is just what the doctor ordered after the extended instrumentals we'd just previously heard in Frank's big song. You Are What You Is peaks so high at such an unexpected time that it's flat out disarming. ZFT CD number 35, Ship Arriving Too Late to Save a Drowning Witch, released by Frank Zappa in May of 1982. No, not now. That's a pretty great way to segue into the next movement of the big song. Falsetto vocals with fairly repetitive lyrics over some funky bass, distorted guitar, and even some hand claps for good measure. This seems too good to be true. It almost seems like we're in for an extended coda to the You Are What You Is portion of the big song, but we aren't. In fact, while there's not actually anything wrong with this album, it's just a massive letdown after so many dizzying peaks back to back with the last movement. I've tried to enjoy this album every which way, but it seems so slight in comparison to where we've just been that I can only see this as sort of a cooling off moment in the big song we're trying to chronicle, review, and take in. Listen, Valley Girl is the elephant in the room. It's an unexpectedly huge worldwide hit single featuring a 14-year-old Moon Zappa defining valley speak for the masses. How'd this happen? Well, reportedly, Moon slipped a note under the door of the studio wanting to spend time with her dad, so she figured, well, maybe he'll hire me. And she made a list of some voices she could do. In it was the typical vowel speak. Frank woke her up in the middle of the night, stuck her in front of a microphone, and that was apparently how they got to spend some time together that week or month, or I don't know, I wasn't there. But once you get past Moon changing the teenage lexicon for the foreseeable future with lines like, gag me with a spoon, barf me out, and an exceptionally liberal usage of the word like, one can hear that musically, Arthur Barrow is absolutely owning the rest of the song with some sliding bass work that could make John Entwistle jealous. Now, it doesn't hold up terribly well for repeat listening, but it isn't too shabby if you hear it once in a blue moon. And it's bizarre that such a small and non-representative portion of Frank's big song would go on to be such a cultural touchstone. I mean, lunchboxes, movies, you name it, Valley Girl, in its own way, accidentally defined the early 80s. And I can't imagine the shock on the faces of the average record buyer picking up Ship Arriving Too Late to Save a Drowning Witch, thinking it'd just be a good time novelty record after they'd heard Valley Girl, and then whoosh, I come from nowhere. Just buy it, oh. 
I Come From Nowhere starts as another cool rock song with a ringing guitar part before the vocals come in, and well, I don't know how, how you really describe that. I can only imagine that Frank conducted whoever sang this song to do so as annoyingly as possible. It's a clearly intentionally bad vocal, but I can't really put my finger on what purpose it serves. The song itself is merely okay on a compositional level. Now, I mean merely okay for Zappa. But that vocal seems like a commentary type of response to annoying valley speak, but this one isn't as successful because it becomes actively hard to listen to, despite a sprawling and bordering on acrobatic guitar solo from Patrick O'Hearn. I should point out that at this point, that album's halfway over. Really seems sort of interstitial, inconsequential, and rather tossed off. Despite the overwhelming popularity of Valley Girl, the nearly unrealistically complex title track in Drowning Witch is the true draw on the album. Microphones and percussion recall the much-missed stylings of Ruth Underwood, and while most of the vocal is yet another Sprechgesang exercise, the long, long guitar solo is entrancing and fascinating and punctuated by some amazing synthesized color washes. It's not a song that I necessarily derive a ton of pleasure from, but I merely appreciate the musicality of, and that musicality really reaches out and bites you after so much relatively simple stuff from Frank, which is... Just not what anyone should have been expecting at this stage in his career. It's followed by the short envelopes, which has a fantastic melody with percussive elements doubling it underneath, making the twisted notes sort of seem to bubble, and it leads effortlessly into the, get this, heavy metal meets opera of teenage prostitute. And while that description might sound like I'm poking fun at it, there's really no other way to explain the soprano vocal delivery of Lisa Popeil. Yes, Lisa Popeil, daughter of that Mr. Popeil. It feels like an operatic piece that Zappa cheekily had his band deliver in the heaviest way that they were capable of. She's only 17. She's really sort of cute. She's working in the street. She's a teenage prostitute. And that's it. Installment number 35 of the big song seems stunted at barely 34 minutes. I'm not sure if Valley Girl was a hit before or after this album's release, but I'm hoping it was before, because otherwise it kind of smacks of a cash-in. And cashing in also doesn't feel like Frank's style, because there's some serious substance in this movement. It's just not my favorite stuff. I struggle to say much more about the contents of this album, which simply feels like an extended EP. Without the big hit single, this record could have faded out of view very quickly, and in all honesty, though there are definitely cool moments, when taken as an album rather than a section of a long song, I'd put this in the same pile as Zappa in New York and Tinseltown Rebellion. I like it more than the former, but not as much as the latter, but it's ultimately one of those releases you only need if you want the entire collection. Otherwise, I'd be surprised to find that there were even many Zappa freaks that reach for this album all that often. And finally, the ZFT CD is the same digital master that's always been out there. That's not a great thing either. The bottom end is pretty shallow while the high end can be harsh and brittle. 
and it's possible that this could be more enjoyable with a really nice warm makeover in the mastering department, but the contents would still be pretty slight compared to most of the other installments in this series. But hey, let's see where it leads us. Week 20, ZFT CD 36, The Man from Utopia, released by Frank Zappa in March of 1983. When trying to talk about the history of this album, it's a little complicated. The contents, track list, and mix changes depending on which format you're listening to and when you bought it. I'll point out that while I own the Italian LP, which is fitting because the record's kind of a chronicling of a short tour that Zappa did of Italy... For the purpose of this project, I've been listening to the 2012 CD release from Universal, the ZFT version. This album is highly maligned and not well-loved, and I'm not sure why. Well, sure, it isn't my go-to Zappa, but it's actually really enjoyable and a pretty neat sampler of what Frank would be doing in the 1980s. The opening tracks in this movement are really rather simple and direct. Cocaine Decisions is... And a direct indictment of high-level executives that make decisions while under the influence with some shockingly straight-ahead music that's almost reminiscent of Billy Joel, while Sex... Sex is another bluesy rocker that cribs some melodies from Crew Slut from Joe's Garage, and lyrically, it's no more complicated than the title implies. A few almost-too-easy lyrical hooks abound, but it's not bad by any means. The most striking aspect is just how accessible these tracks are when you first press play. Bigger the cushion, the better the pushing. The bigger the cushion, the better the pushing. The bigger the cushion, the better the pushing. The bigger the cushion. My first real highlight here shows up in the form of Tink Walks Amok. A funky and challenging track that plays around with some of the most interesting elements of the lower tones from all the involved instruments have to offer. Seems like it's just a segue, but if extracted and made to stand alone, it's actually pretty neat. into another Sprechtesang meltdown with The Radio Is Broken, which is the first of three of those on this album. Out of those three, this is the least interesting one for my money. Frank seemed to get really fascinated with music that sounded tossed off and unrehearsed, but was actually beyond complex at this time. It sounds as if it's more fun for the musicians than it might be for the listener. The salvation for those types of tracks is that the instrumentation is still much along the lines of the small rock band style that we've had since Tinseltown Rebellion. And it also makes the almost aimless explorations easier to swallow, but for those that make it through the piece, you're rewarded with a Dwarf Nebula reference that brings the weasels rip my flesh days to mind. We're Not Alone seems a little bit choppy coming out of that last jazzy meltdown, but it's one of Frank's strongest and most underrated instrumentals. Heavy on the saxophone, it sounds like the best closing theme to a TV game show that was never used as such. I'd even go as far as saying We Are Not Alone is as memorable as, say, A Peaches and Regalia, and I'm not terribly sure why it goes relatively unnoticed in our big song. I'm interested to see if such a strong piece will have any refrains in the upcoming puzzle pieces. Or maybe We Are Not Alone seems so striking as it's sandwiched between two of those aforementioned meltdowns. 
The Dangerous Kitchen is a lyrical piece about the horrors of an unwashed kitchen. It sounds like Zappa wrote the words, improvised the melody on the spot in accordance with his favorite way to compose, and later overdubbed a guitar to double his vocal exactly. A pretty fascinating experiment, really. Some lines like, who the fuck wants to clean it, do really stick out, but very few elements really stick in your mind when it moves into yet another straightforward piece like Mary Lou meets the man from Utopia, which sees the return of some Louie Louie types of chord changes and doo-wop elements, first time in a while. Interestingly, this was the track that was picked as a standalone single to represent this album, when something like the song Sex was probably more in line with the tastes of the album-oriented rock radio format at the time. Well, he had a girl, her name was Mary Lou. Well, he had a girl, her name was Mary Lou. She did everything for him that she could do. Speaking of callbacks to early bits of this big song, Stick Together continues the anti-union sentiments of Rudy Wants to Buy Yez a Drink from Chunga's Revenge against that semi-reggae rhythm that Zappa seemed to use so often around this period of the big song. It also stands as being catchier than the chosen singles from this album, and that's ultimately the frustrating part about The Man from Utopia. It's either accessible to a fault or completely impenetrable with very little material that falls in between those lines. The Jazz Discharge Party Hats follows the exact same formula as The Dangerous Kitchen, with the overdubbed double guitar working to a much more striking effect, as the lyrics are just a rundown of stories of band members that enjoyed sniffing undergarments. So anyway, but if that's your idea of a good time, what the haste in those pants up here, here's some more. Okay, good, good. Traditional cotton, oh how sweet. <laughs> here, work these. With tracks like this, I have to forcibly remind myself that this is just a short piece of a much larger work and doesn't have to be seen as a song. And it all makes more sense, becoming slightly less grating in the process, but it is kind of a technological wonder. This movement's wrapped up with an uncharacteristically out-of-tune doo-wop piece called Luigi and the Wise Guys, and an absolutely stunning percussive instrumental called Maggio, which is yet another one of Frank's most accomplished pieces, complete with a lumpy gravy-style snork to open and close it. And tracks like Maggio remind me that on a musical level, I'm not nearly proficient enough to be talking for this project. I can tell you that I appreciate it, the musicianship is utterly mind-blowing, but I I can't necessarily communicate why that is. It's one that you might be better served to hear for your, yourself. Maggio recalls a shorter take on the type of instrumental that one might have expected from something like Roxy and Elsewhere, which is quite interesting considering that the next album is actually earlier material. The Man from Utopia is full of ups and downs, but it gets a general thumbs up from me because the peaks are high enough to warrant that, and truthfully, it feels like manna from heaven after my personal disappointment after ship arriving too late to save a drowning witch. The ZFT CD release isn't nearly as shrill as the prior album, either. It still sounds very digital and kind of sterile, but in a rather clean way that really works for this album. The lows are right where they ought to be, and very little feels as if it's squashed into oblivion. A pretty cool release, and it shows up in the big song right when I needed it to.
ZFT CD number 37, Baby Snakes, released in March of 1983 on the exact same day as Man from Utopia by Frank Zappa. Tonight, though, I, I tell you one thing about these New York crowds. Some of them, they, they get too carried away, you know, because they think Frank Zappa is such a, a madman, you know. They come here to, to see him go crazy or something, you know. They don't realize that he's... There's notes involved, you know? Okay, this just kind of seems redundant. I'm not sure why the pitifully short soundtrack to the film Baby Snakes is considered to be an official release because it's hardly representative of the contents of the film of the same name in the least. But here we are, kicking off with some dialogue between Warren Cucurulo that leads us into a slightly different edit of Baby Snakes from Shake Your Booty. The rest is called from mostly the same live performances that are highlighted in the accompanying film with the impeccable 1978 lineup especially highlighted by the chops of Adrian Blue and Terry Basio, were treated to a much more interesting and compact titties and beer than the version found on Zappa in New York, with some special dialogue pointed directly at the Warner Brothers record label. Ditto for the succinct reading of the black page number two that follows. This mysterious little disc gives us a new take on Jones Crusher that doesn't really do anything much different than the version we'd already heard on Shake Your Booty, and also a brisk take on Disco Boy in a slightly different key than the original. We also get a version of Dynamo Hum, which absolutely thrills the audience, and Punky's Whips. I will say that I found this version of the latter slightly more interesting than the one that I came to loathe on Zappa in New York. One reason is that I find when Frank does the intro instead of Don Pardo, the inherent satire of the 12-minute Terry isn't gay, but piece is a little bit more apparent from the get-go. Important when you're going to explore that same theme over and over for a quarter of an hour. Baby Snakes isn't bad by any means, it just seems out of place and unnecessary at this point in our big song. Even when I try to look at these tracks as refrains of earlier movements, they're in some cases so incredibly similar that it doesn't land with much impact for me. It's enjoyable, but as our next few releases will be completely orchestral, it feels like a bone thrown to those that enjoy the dirtier material before we swim around in serious music for a while. And maybe after studying some of the classical pieces next week, I'll get why this album was much more needed than I'm giving it credit for. The ZFT CD sounds just fine. Really, it doesn't do anything all that special. But as the original LP was a picture disc, I'm inclined to believe that it must be a huge upgrade to the original vinyl release. Though I can't confirm that as I don't have access to one for comparison. It's pretty neat, but as the movie is so monolithic and long, this soundtrack feels positively lightweight in comparison. Week 21, ZFT CD number 38, London Symphony Orchestra, Volume 1, released by Frank Zappa in June of 1983. I'm ready to give you the skinny on this sharp, sharp left turn that the big song has taken, but first, I've got to do some explaining. 
There were two volumes of the original London Symphony Orchestra albums, and they were initially released a few years apart. At some point, the track listing was completely reconfigured and smushed into a two-disc set. Now, it's still considered to be releases 38 and 48, but in the same package. And, of course, both discs say the same thing. They have the same numbers. No delineation on which disc is which entry. To properly listen to this, I'd have to program the original playlist or something, but I'm simply not going to do that. Instead, I'm choosing to see disc 1 as ZFT CD number 38 while viewing the second disc accordingly. Why? Because when it comes right down to it, I don't think that Frank Zappa liked these recordings very much. He paid out of pocket to rent an orchestra to play some of his most inhuman compositions. They were short on time, but also the orchestra didn't take it very seriously and simply didn't do a fantastic job. Frank saw fit to release these recordings after heavy studio doctoring, but a large part of me wonders if it wasn't just an attempt to make some kind of return on his investment. Because, folks, let me tell you, I'm not nearly the world's foremost authority on classical music and recordings, though I've had jobs in that field before, mostly just managing the heavily trafficked classical section of an old Borders bookstore, so it came in handy to know a thing or two. With that said, at least on what I'm choosing to view as ZFT CD38, this orchestra sounds listless, sloppy, and straight-up disinterested. There's very little passion on display unless longtime cohorts Chad Wackerman or Ed Mann crash in with some beats. Seriously, that's about the only life here to these ears. The other troubling bit is that Zappa's work is musically challenging to even the most advanced listener. When I hear something that doesn't quite flow like it should? I can't tell if the orchestra played it badly or if they got that bit right and it's supposed to sound a little bit off. In short, I can't make heads or tails of, say, the second movement of Bob and Dacron. It's challenging, and it's supposed to be, but I'm pretty sure it's challenging me for the wrong reasons. To the average ears, this will just sound like weird classical music or something. Not exactly pleasant, but also not the kind of thing that puts you to sleep. But it's the absolute last thing you'd expect after Punky's Whips. There are clicks, clacks, squeals, and other sounds that one normally wouldn't expect from this type of music, but once you get to the long and dramatic Sad Jane, this record just really floats in the background, at least for the first movement. I never thought I'd be able to say that about a Frank Zappa record, but here we are. The ZFT CD release sounds just fine, and I appreciate that it does because if I were having to try to figure out if I'm being challenged by a strange piece of music or if it's just badly performed and having to wade through sonic muck to do it, I'd probably have fairly harsh words. For now, I simply don't mind it, and unless something really striking occurs in, again, what I'm choosing to view as the second volume, I'll likely never reach for this album again. It's nice enough, but I'm a little bit surprised that it's even available. Frank wasn't really one to let subpar performances fly unchecked, but I suppose that every song could use a bum note, even really, really long ones.
ZFT CD number 39, Bouleg Conducts Zappa, The Perfect Stranger, released by Frank Zappa in August of 1984. Okay, this is really more like what I'd hoped for from a Frank Zappa classical album. Pierre Boulet really seems to understand the strong drama of Frank's work and his group, and I'm going to butcher the name, so uh, it, I think it's the Ensemble Intercontemporane, but if I got to refer to him again, I'm just going to say the Ensemble. They're more than up to the task, though. Of course, their works only make up half of the album, which is already frustratingly short. But this is some really gripping stuff. And for those that don't do so well with music that doesn't contain words, Frank has seen fit to offer you some liner notes that give you descriptions of situations that you can envision while listening. For example, the 12-minute title track is about a door-to-door salesman who's accompanied by the vacuum from the cover of the Chunga's Revenge album. And this is his sales pitch as viewed through the eyes of a dog in a high chair. I'm really glad that the description is enclosed because, apart from the doorbells, I never would have caught what was going on. It's sometimes dreamy, sometimes scary, and kind of gritty. What it isn't is obvious in any way, as in the reprisal of the atonal navigation and art where we're told that it's a sailor artist trying to find inspiration while peering through a porthole. The title of the album's a bit of a misnomer, as Boulet only conducts Zappa for the above-mentioned tracks in Dupree's Paradise, which is meant to invoke a jam session on the Sunset Strip in 1964. But the, uh, the rest of the album? Listen, let me take a second here, because this is a big honkin' development in our big song. We're finally introduced to the Synclavier. The Synclavier is an early synthesizer that would play back the music that you'd written in notation on it. You could change the sounds to do any number of interesting things, and folks, Frank was just crazy about this thing. Our first full Synclavier piece comes in the form of the girl in the magnesium dress, which truly does seem as if it's a piece of music that a mortal human being would not be capable of performing. It's a rolling and dreamlike three minutes, but it pretends a big sea change in what's to come in this big song. Frank was always trying to get the music to reflect what the dots on the paper were supposed to sound like without the human element. And after the London Symphony Orchestra fiasco, one could hardly blame him. Why spend a bunch of money renting an orchestra when this magic box can produce nearly any sound that one can dream up? Of course, most of these sounds all do sound remarkably like they came out of digital synthesis, but it's a rather pleasing tone, so you needn't be scared. Frank goes fully electronic for around half of this album in a way that few could have predicted. And the best part is that the accompanying material is simply fantastic. One example is that Frank fed the notes from just the guitar solo of Outside Now from Joe's Garage into his new toy, played with some decays, numbers, and settings, and ended up with a brand new work that doesn't sound a thing like the source. For a man obsessed with composing, it would have been illogical for him to not end up with a synclavier. Their 
There's a minute-long bubbling and chirpy piece called Love Story, supposedly about Republicans taking a stab at some clumsy sex, but the album goes very, very dark with the closing Jonestown, a rumination on Frank's perception of the ugliness of religions. I'll leave the description for you to read if you should come in contact with this album on your own. It's a pretty hideous mental picture, and the slow pulse of the track fits it perfectly. Jonestown stands as one of Frank's most unfairly overlooked compositions. I absolutely loved every second of The Perfect Stranger. The ZFT CD seems to be cut just a little too hot in some places, but that actually enhanced my enjoyment just a touch. To be crystal clear one moment and then have an orchestral moment pushing the very edge of distortion worked surprisingly well, though I'm not sure if it was an intentional move. I'm not sure that I could put it in the masterpiece pile because it does seem a bit like the remnants of two wholly different projects, but it's an essential piece to understand the crossroads of Frank Zappa's work, as well as a telltale signpost of things to come in the big song, and a good place for us to leave off right now. Friends, this is when I take a moment out to say thank you so much for listening. It's been my pleasure to host this for you. Hope you're having a good time in the series, though I'd imagine if you're not, you'd have tuned out long before this and you're not hearing me talk right now. So if you enjoy hearing me talk or just like the way that I create things in general, look, I make a lot of stuff. I've made a ton of records. You can find out about all of them at markwithac.com, which is really just a GUI of markwithac.bandcamp.com. If you want to follow me on social media, there's a lot of ways that you can do it. For example, on Twitter, I'm at markfi. That's M-A-R-C-F-I, as in... There's lo-fi, hi-fi, mid-fi, and mark-fi. But if you go to markwithac.com, up top, there's a big old banner thingy where you can click to follow me on Facebook or follow me on Instagram and look at my bunnies or something. It's that kind of world, and hey, I'm stuck here. Let's make the best of it, right? Thank you for being such a hardcore music fan that you ran right out to pick up everything that you heard that you liked. Because that's just how cool you are, right? You did that? You, you kept pausing this to order music that you'd never heard before. That is amazing. Well, all of the music that I played today is either owned by the Frank Zappa family, the Frank Zappa family trust, of course, or uh, some of the bed music, the background music, and uh, our theme, Air Hockey Saloon. That's by Chris Zabriskie. And you can find out a lot more about Chris and his fantastic ambient works over at chrisabriskie.com. we got a ton of other cool podcasts coming down the pike. Stay subscribed. And, you know, I don't know if I've mentioned this before now, but I'll go ahead and do it. It is really important that wherever you are receiving this podcast, be it iTunes or, I don't know, in a shoebox or something, that you take a moment to rate and review this. I don't know why that matters so much, but it does. It the higher ranked things get in the podcast world, the more ears find out about it. And that doesn't necessarily mean, oh, great, more people are finding out about Mark with a C. No, it means that more people, in this case, are finding out about Frank Zappa. It's just a little bit more public. If you enjoyed it, tell a friend or tell the world by rating and reviewing us. Thank you so much for tuning in. My name's Mark with a C. You've been a fantastic audience to speak for, and man, We've still got quite a ways to go in the big song.
I'll see you next time, my friends. Consequence Podcast Network. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you.